Today's guest is Professor Michael Crawford. He is director of the Institute of Brain Chemistry and Human Nutrition. He's the founder, a trustee of the Mother and Child Foundation and the Little Foundation. He is the president of the McCarrison Society. He's the winner of numerous awards, which I will go into. He also helped me get the Food for the Brain Foundation started back in the 90s. Now, Michael, I met you first at the Royal Zoological Society in the late 1970s. What were you doing then? Uh, And to give us a bit of background, what was it that first got you interested in omega-3 fats and the brain? Yeah, well, well, it was very simple in East Africa, teaching at McCarrie Medical School in Kampala, Uganda, uh, between 1960 and 65. And during that time, I was impressed by what might be called nature's last uh, effort in mammalian evolution that surrounded us in Uganda at the time. All this wonderful wildlife that people talk about. And um, the thought struck me that um, here we are, Homo sapiens, with this big brain, but why were there such different sizes of brains in the skulls of so many different species? So we set to the fact that um, uh, most people were considering nutrition, and particularly malnutrition in, in East Africa at the time, to be a problem of protein. But the brain is made of fat. So we decided when I got the job at the, uh, to head up biochemistry at the Nuffield Institute of Comparative Medicine, um, uh, I had a brand new laboratory and with lots of nice, shiny new equipment. And the, the question was, what were we going to do? So the answer was very simple. Why shouldn't we answer the, try to answer the question as to what is the difference between the... Uh, why is it that there are such wide differences in brain size? And, of course, the ultimate question is, why does Homo sapiens have such a, a big brain? Well, of course, he doesn't have such a big brain because um, the dolphin has an even bigger brain. But let's leave that for the time being. So we have effectively studied some, in total, 42 different species and looked at the uh, lipids of the brain and found that Essentially, the fatty acid composition, uh, which we expected to be the variable, was hugely variable as expected in the liver. But when you went to the brain across these species, it was identical. This meant that the brain composition had been conserved powerfully throughout evolution. And so the difference between the species was not the chemistry of the brain, but the extent to which the brain had evolved, which meant, very simply, that the ingredients, the the, uh, fatty acid ingredients of the brain um, were essential to um, the growth and development of the brain. And the two most important of those were, of course, arachidonic acid um, and docosahexaenoic acid. So that set us off on a trail um, for docosahexaenoic acid. So why docosahexaenoic acid? And the answer was very simple, that people accepted that omega-6 fatty acids were essential for mammalian reproduction. 
this was given, it was an accepted thing. However, nobody at the time thought that omega-3 was of any relevance whatsoever. So we had to, a, 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 a big hill to climb presenting evidence from experiments and human evidence, etc., etc. And a lot of other people became, became involved in it as well to actually present the evidence that uh, omega-3 were important to begin with. And secondly, specifically to present evidence that DHA was singularly important as far as the brain was concerned. That's really how it all happened. And where, I mean, let's go right back. What is the origin of the, of the brain, the nervous system? I mean, where, and where was sort of DHA first involved, do you think? Ah, yeah. You were, well, <coughs> excuse me. Now, this is something that everybody knows, but they don't know. Um, the brain evolved in the sea 500 to 600 million years ago. And it probably was started by the switch from the, the um, handling of photons from the sun, which for the first two and a half billion years um, was used for photosynthesis by the um, algae and the light, as, as, as plants do today. Um, so when, when oxygen became available, round about the time of the Vendian and Cambrian, beginning of the Cambrian period, when oxygen became available, oxidate, and oxidative metabolism became feasible, you had a whole different ball game, because during the first three billion years of life, there is no evidence of any intracellular detail. In other words, the cells were just blobs, and suddenly, with the appearance of oxygen in the scene and oxidative metabolism, what you now have is intracellular detail. Now, these are things like the nuclear envelope, for example. The nucleus with its DNA is, is neatly packed in a little package. Uh, the reticular endothelial system, the lines where protein synthesis takes place, the mitochondria, microsomes, and so on. Um, and so, effectively, what one can conclude from that is that the advent of oxygen enabled lipid synthesis. Now, making fats requires more than twice as much energy to make proteins. And it would be particularly difficult to make something like docosahexaenoic acid in the uh, first... Uh, um, anaerobic phase of life on the planet. Because just to take the six double bonds of docosahexaenoic acid, it requires six oxygen atoms uh, to make those six double bonds, never mind synthesizing the fat itself. So it would have been very difficult before the advent of oxygen and, uh, to, to, to actually make something like docosahexaenoic But once you've got oxygen, then you can do these interesting things. And so the, 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 we now have a situation where we can make lipids, and lipids formed these intracellular details. They formed the membranes that wrapped up the nucleus, that wrapped up the mitochondria, and wrapped up the cell itself. And so effectively what we have is intracellular specialization. 
So it doesn't take a leap of the imagination to, to consider that, as we now know, that the, the cell membrane, the plasma membrane, that goes around the cell itself, is highly specialized um, and for cell identification. So you have not just intracellular specialization, but you then have cell specialization. And then, of course, you had speciation. So this is a, an unsung story of the singular importance of lipids and lipid membrane structures in the uh, advent of the 32 phyla, the different animal uh, types that we have today. Now, the most important one, of course, was this photoreception business, because instead of turning photons from the sun into carbohydrates and proteins, it was now turning photons into electricity. And electricity sparked the evolution of the nervous system, which ultimately became the brain. And it happened with dicosahexanoic acid with DHA, uh, as being a fundamental structural component for these photoreceptors that did that trick. And the interesting thing, of course, is that the um, things like the dinoflagellates, you can imagine that, that whatever happened uh, 500, 600 um, million years ago, something like the dinoflagellates, which is a nice spot that can both photosynthesize and um, photoreceive um, and turn photons into electricity. Um, analyzing the dinoflagellate today, you find it is stuffed full of DHA, dicosahexanoic acid, not only DHA, but also DHA in the phospholipids, which have got two positions, usually one with an unsaturated and one with a saturated. And in the, in the, in the um, dinoflagellate, we found John Sargent did it first from Sterling University, found di-DHA, that is, uh, the, this photoreceptor uh, story is that the, 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 the photoreceptor itself is stuffed full of DHA. You really can't get any more DHA molecules in there. And so it was absolutely pivotal in the formation of the structures which converted photons into electricity and hence the origin of the brain. And we now find, of course, that it's in all the signaling systems of the brain, the synapses and neurons, and performs a what we believe to be a quantum mechanical uh, function in converting these, these signals from the brain um, into the, um, in, into the uh, uh, things like thought, uh, vision, hearing, touch, uh, and dreams, it, it's, it's all happening through a, if you like, a sea of DHA. Um, are these um, very uh, sort of rudimentary cells that we're talking about, dinoflagellate, are they a little bit like eye cells? Because we know that the eyes are incredibly concentrated in DHA. And is this omega-3 fat DHA the, the sort of super clever uh, molecule, semiconductor, so to speak, that can actually convert sun energy photons uh, into yeah, yeah. nerve power. Is that kind of where it all started? Yeah, that, that, that has to be where it started. And um, the dinoflagellate um, has got an eye spot, and uh, that eye spot can uh, convert photons into 
either carbohydrates and proteins as photosynthesis, and it can also do the photo uh, reception into electricity as well. So it's, a, it's rather a neat little thing. So it, it, you know, we can't, we don't have evidence of exactly what happened 500 to 600 million years ago, but it's very likely that it was something like the dinoflagellate that um, started the ball game. It, I don't think it was the dinoflagellate itself, otherwise it, it wouldn't have got stuck as, as a dinoflagellate, but something similar and perhaps a bit more biologically versatile than the dinoflagellate would be doing this business of converting electricity into, um, sorry, photons into electricity. So last month, moving forward, I interviewed Peter Rees Evans, author of The Waterside Ape, which gave me what I would say is incontrovertible proof that the development of Homo sapiens was a direct result. Um, that the development of Homo sapiens was a direct consequence of becoming a semi-aquatic ape, living along the water's edge. Do you agree? What do you think was the role of marine foods in our brain development? I, I, I don't think there is any doubt whatsoever that to achieve the brain size that we have, in relation to the small body size, uh, that we actually had to have access to the marine food web. Um, this is uh, a sine qua non. You can't build a brain without DHA, and there's very little of it on the land-based food web. Um, and if you look at the um, <clears throat> size in relation to the body of basically all land-based mammals. You start off with a little thing like a, 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 a mouse, a rat, or a squirrel, or a hyrax, or something of that size, small thing. They, they have got quite large brain-to-body weight ratios. And this is, I think, because they can make DHA from parent alpha-linolenic acid, which occurs in green food on the land. But as the velocity of body growth accelerated, so the ability to convert alpha-linolenic acid into DHA diminished. And you can see, see that we, we published the chemistry on this, that the proportion of DHA in the liver lipids just simply vanishes as you get to these big animals. And with the vanishing of DHA, you get the contraction of brain size. So, or on land, every species that evolved on land experienced a reduction in the proportion of brain to body size as it evolved a bigger body. And it's a logarithmic fall off. That means that there was no way uh, that Homo sapiens could evolve, have evolved just simply on the land. He would have had to have had, or, or we would have had to have had, um, access to a rich source of DHA. Because we know that DHA is not just responsible for all this signaling in the brain. Uh, it also actually was shown by uh, Laszlo Puskas in, in Zeged in Hungary uh, and, and Andrew Sinclair that the 
DHA actually triggers a number of genes in the brain to support its growth and function. So it's not just sitting there as a signaling system, it's also doing something very important, which is telling the genetic material of the brain, come on, let's build a big, big brain. So without DHA, there is no question in my mind, you just simply could not have had the evolution of the large brain. That means, without any doubt, that Homo sapiens had to have been evolving beside water. Uh, and the, the, let us put it this way, that he also had to have had land-based food because the omega-6 are essential for reproduction and we can't reproduce without it. And this is true, actually, even of the marine mammals, that they have to have their limiting factor is not DHA. Their limiting factor is actually the omega-6 arachidonic acid. And we have to have had um, both the best of both worlds, the best of the land and the best of the sea that enabled us to evolve this large brain. And what is the difference between our brains and the brains of other animals, including primates, our nearest cousins? No, there isn't any difference. Size is the only difference, extent to which they evolve. And uh, how much bigger are our brains than that of gorillas, chimpanzees, and so on? Well, um, you know, I can only answer this by just referring to the proportion of the brain in relation to the size of the body. Because this is, this is, this is an important, people don't think about it, that actually you're sitting there, but your brain is actually monitoring everything from your fingertips to your toes. It's monitoring every single square centimeter of your body. So bodies, the bigger the body size, the more energy the brain has to, the more function the brain has to devote to monitoring what's going on. And so the bigger you get, the less room, if you have just, the less room you have for cognition. So what you have to do is to evolve uh, um, a harmony of body growth and brain growth. And that's what Homo sapiens did uh, by having access to both land and marine food systems. And I think it's uh, quite important to realize that, that the, if, if you, we don't actually have a, a big brain in relation to our body. If a squirrel has about 2.3 or 2.4% of its body as brain We've only got 2%. So we've actually got a slightly smaller brain in relation to our body uh, than the squirrel. And in fact, this is quite a worrying thing because uh, it, it, the evidence is, is now that uh, brain size has been diminishing. It's been diminishing since the um, cultivation of land-based foods. And we think uh, that, uh, at least I think, and we're pretty sure about it, that the recent escalation of mental ill health is a consequence of the great success of the food industry in developing intensively produced land-based foods. And we've, you know, the, the, the marine food web has just been forgotten. And in fact, it reached its absolute maximum offtake at about um, the year 2000. And uh, we're not getting anywhere near the amount of fish and seafood we should be getting. I think I was reading that, uh, I mean, our brains are approximately three times 
uh, larger than that of of, uh, of the other apes, and that uh, I saw one measure ten thousand years ago. I'm not quite sure how that was achieved at one point four five kilograms, so one and a half kilograms. And then I remember reading uh, not so long ago one point three five kilograms. So I mean, do you think that our brain size has literally shrunk? Yeah, I, 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 I don't think this. Other people have published this, and I'll accept what they say, because Herto, um, in Ethiopia, they, they have very good evidence of a brain size of 1,450 uh, cubic centimeters. Um, that was 160,000 years ago. And these were people that were living beside uh, aquatic resources, um, both hunting and fishing, uh, assumedly. Um, so when you come down to the present day, where brain size has been diminishing, and people have, um, uh, Marta Lair from um, Cambridge has, has reported on this, that the relative brain size has been diminishing since the time of the domestication of plants and animals. And uh, we're down about the region of 1.35 cc's at the moment. So we've lost about the size of a um, tennis ball in terms of brain size. And we, we, I'm pretty sure that this is, uh, that this is the imbalance that we now have uh, between um, the, the uh, access to the marine food web um, and freshwater food web as well. Don't forget that. That was also important. Um, I mean, our lakes and rivers have been denuded of what was once a very rich source of, of food. Um, it, it's, it's just very sad. And, and it, it, it's, it's just so logical that, that this is, this is the, the consequence of this is an increase in mental ill health and a reduction in IQ as well. I remember when they found a 40,000-year-old Homo sapiens in uh, the Gower Peninsula in, in Wales and did, uh, did sort of bone uh, analysis and concluded that about a quarter of their diet must have been marine food. And my logic is I'm sure they were expending at least twice the calories. You know, life's hard. Yeah. You know that therefore today probably half of what we eat would need to be for marine food to simply achieve what our ancestors have been achieving in terms of not just essential fats but you know things like zinc and selenium and iodine and uh, you know and choline and all the other essential marine nutrients. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's really quite important to understand that. Uh, when I grew up, if we went out for a posh uh, Sunday lunch or something, you always had four courses. You would have some kind of entree, which might be soup or, or something of that sort. Um, and then you would have a fish course, and then you would have a meat course. And uh, that's quite interesting, because that was the, the thing to do when you were really um, going for a, a, a good meal. And, and actually, if we stop and think about it, that... Um, <clears throat> If you go back to Queen Elizabeth's time, um, about half the English income came from the cod, came from the fishing. Uh, historical that we've had this uh, connection. We're an island nation like, like Japan, and, and we made great use of the marine resources and the freshwater.
water resources as well. The, it, it, it's just um, tragic. In, in 1950, um, the marine the, the, in Britain, the, the catch landing was about one million tons of, of, um, of uh, fish and seafood. Um, in 2017, I think it was about 330,000 tons. But in the meantime, the population of Britain had gone from somewhere in the region of 50 plus uh, million up to 67 million. So the per capita landing has just, just, just um, declined rapidly. And it, it makes sense that um, we're now, uh, you know, self-inflicting this uh, increase in mental ill health and uh, decline in IQ. Yes, so is that true? Is our intelligence, is our IQ actually declining? Are we heading for a race of morons? Somebody made that expression, didn't they? That <laughs> we may be heading for an idiocracy. Yeah, what do you think? Yeah, that, that quote actually comes from, interesting, Graham Rose in the Sunday Times. Um, in 1972, uh, after discovering this, with Andrew Sinclair, this relationship between arachidonic acid and, and DHA and the brain, uh, and the, hence the significance of, of the marine food web and the significance of DHA and the significance of nutrition to, to brain growth and development, um, we published a book called What We Eat Today, and uh, Graham Rose reviewed it in the, in the Sunday Times on, I think it was the 5th of November, uh, 1972. And what he said was that if these guys are right, then we're, we're going to become a race of morons. So that's where the morons story comes from. Okay. And it wasn't our um, uh, interpretation of it. We never said anything about race of morons, but it just shows that the message that we had in 1972 was straightforward and easily understood by um, the somebody without a scientific background. Now, you do research at the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, which incidentally was the only intensive care unit that was giving vitamin C to its COVID patients and posted the lowest mortality rates. But how does your research impact on brain development of their patients and of their uh, pregnant mothers? Well, <coughs> that is an interesting question, of course, if we... Go back to the evolution story just for a moment. The pregnant mother, um, wandering around the seashore uh, at that time, which would have been immensely rich in practically everything you can think of, from crabs, oysters, mussels, periwinkles, and so on and so forth, and fish trapped in the rocky pools and that sort of thing. Um, it would, it, you know, she could have, even if she had children with her, she could have just wandered around the coastline and, and enjoyed uh, the Fruta del Mare to her heart's content. And if the men had gone off hunting or something like that, if they didn't catch anything, well, so what? But if they caught something, then that would be fine. But uh, it would have been uh, absolutely available that she would have been able to um, complete her, her requirement for DHA 
and all these trace elements like iodine, selenium, zinc, copper, and manganese, which are also vitally important for the brain. And interestingly, the, uh, um, uh, the, the, you, you referred to evidence of um, uh, um, coastal habitation and, and seafood utilization, uh, but there is extremely good evidence of that uh, going back to the first evidence of, of, of um, anatomically um, and behaviorally uh, similar to modern humans in Pinnacle Point in South Africa, where they discovered caves that, uh, with mountains of shellfish and uh, absolute incontrovertible evidence of um, extensive exploitation of the marine food web at a time when uh, Homo sapiens had first appeared uh, on the planet. So, and, and you've also got Chris Stringer's evidence of out of Africa that the planet was populated by people wandering around the coastlines, and, and, and that 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 just just absolutely so convincing, um, even if you don't know anything about the chemistry. So, so getting back to the the mother and our work at Justin Westminster Hospital. Um, it's all sort of started with work out in the East End and Wendy Dorr's study and Hackney study, in which we determined without any shadow of doubt that low birth weight um, was, uh, um, had a major uh, problem with regard to maternal nutrition right across the board. It wasn't just one thing. It wasn't just vitamin D. It wasn't just vitamin C. It wasn't just uh, DHA. It was the whole nutrient quality of the food that was eaten by the people with the low, lowest birth weights was of the lowest order. And a randomized controlled trial uh, provided convincing evidence that um, this was uh, significant so far as the um, small for gestational age babies, which uh, are the high, at the highest risk for uh, disorders of the brain. So that was at... Uh, in, in the east end of London. In Chelsea and Westminster, we then paid our attention very specifically to the essential facts. And what we discovered, two things. One was that we found that some of the facts that we um, were interested in, uh, actually, in, in the, the status of the mother's cell membrane, to the red cell membrane, um, which is a part of her tissue, so it's a part of her, so to speak, um, and an integration of uh, what she's been eating, behavior, and everything else, her genomics, uh, the lot. Um, the, the cell membrane actually predicted preterm birth with a better than 90% confidence level um, in uh, when we studied it at uh, uh, first booking for pregnancy care. That's around about 12 weeks after conception. And we had... The interesting thing about that, of course, is that the, the red cell membrane um, is what was the predictor, but the red cell itself has a half-life of 120 days. So what this means is that it's actually the condition of the mother, her health and nutrition in the months prior to conception that actually matters most. When you stop and think about it, um, the fertilized egg implants in the mother at about seven days after 
conception. What is it implanting into? It's implanting into the milieu intérieur of the mother. That milieu is the consequence of things that have been happening in the period prior to conception, running up to the conception itself. That is the major importance to the successful conclusion of, of pregnancy right out to nine months. So this was also um, confirmed when we looked at the magnetic resonance imaging of the brain. We, we Part of the study was a randomized controlled trial of both omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids um, as a supplement. And what we saw was that the supplement, which was given early in pregnancy at, at first booking, um, was actually enhancing the development of the cortical gray matter, brain size, and the corpus callosum uh, in the brains of the boys, but not the brains of the girls. It, it, and we know for a fact, that it's long well established, that the boys are so much more sensitive to a central fatty acid deficiency than the girls. So much so that in the early days, anyone working on a central fatty acid deficiency never studied um, the um, girls. They always just, just selected a whole bunch of boys, boy rats to do their studies on. So it, it, it's, it's interesting that, that the boys responded. And of course, this, this response will probably be more to do with connectivity in, in the boys than, than neurogenesis, because neurogenesis would start very early in after conception when the embryo um, got its act together and the brain started to appear out, out of the system. So so that that's really where we're at at the moment. Two things. One is that the, um, uh, the period prior to conception uh, and around the time of conception is really the major determinant of pregnancy outcome. And the second one is that, yes, we can confirm that the influence of um, uh, DHA in particular uh, on the brain can be seen through enhancement of critical regions in the, the brain, brains of the boys. If we'd started uh, that study before conception, we might have seen a similar effect on the girls. And that's what we're going to do next. And do you, th is, do you think that's why ADHD example is much more prevalent in boys than girls autism also say again uh, ADHD tension deficit hyperactive disorder and yes. also autism is much more prevalent in boys than girls do you think this has something to do with yeah, yes 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 indeed in fact um, autism as well um, and if you look at the COVID-19 the deaths of, uh, are, are more prevalent in the boys than the girls there's, there's a major sex difference. Indeed, we, we reported this that, that, um, in a, John Rivers and I in a paper in Nature in 1974 um, showed that um, the impact of um, essential fatty acid deficiency operated before birth. It operated prenatally. And um, so it, it's, it's no surprise that we saw uh, quite striking difference between the response of the 
boys than the girls. Now, if we lived in a world where before a woman became pregnant, she had to have a MOT, so to speak, uh, what would you test for? If you could run a blood test and look at very specific factors, what is it that determines that a woman is much more likely to have a, a better pregnancy outcome and a healthier, happier and more intelligent baby? Yeah. The, the, the clincher was a fatty acid called oleic acid. It's a membrane component of the phospholipids that build. That makes me think cell. of olive oil. Well, no, yeah, you, you can think of olive It is the major component of olive oil. But it's got nothing to do with your intake of oleic acid. What happens is that <clears throat> oleic acid is monounsaturated. And uh, Claudio Galli showed this in Milan many, many years ago, that if you were deficient of the long-chain uh, polyenoic fatty acids, like arachidonic acid and DHA, if you didn't have enough of this long-chain stuff, uh, then oleic acid would increase in concentration in an attempt to replace the unsaturation in the membrane. So when arachidonic acid DHA goes down in the membrane, oleic acid goes up. And, and so th this, this was a predictor not only of um, uh, uh, preterm birth, which it was, uh, uh, 34 weeks, it was also a predictor of the status of the membrane lipids that are going to be used for brain development. So it has two, two important uh, significances. That it's, first of all, a predictor of preterm birth, and secondly, a predictor of the status uh, for brain development. Now, I would like to get a sense of what the brain is actually made out of. My understanding is that the membrane of our neurons are, are composed of these DHA, the very important omega-3 fat and arachidonic acid, bound to phospholipids like phosphatidylcholine. Uh, yeah. So, yes, what is the brain actually made of? What are the essential fats and phospholipids that we need to get in order to have the opportunity to build a healthy brain? I'm, I'm not quite sure of the question. Uh, it's, it's really about what's the brain made out of uh, we've heard about DHA, arachidonic acid, but also phospholipids. What do we need to be eating to have yeah. the essential fatty components of our brain? Yeah, yeah. Um, that, yeah. So that's a very interesting question because um, we, we delve deep now. Um, the neurons are the masters of the brain in the sense that they uh, are connected to um, or, or, or they or developing from the neurons through the dendrites are something about 7,000 to 10,000 um, synaptic connections. And these are the things that connect up with everything else and transmit information. And we believe are actually the, the, the focus for cognition and consciousness. Now, the, the, the brain neurons and synapses are extremely rich in DHA. And they, we have shown this quite a long time ago, 
DHA is selectively incorporated into uh, both the synapses, neurons, and in the, even the subcellular components of the synapses. But <clears throat> to maintain all of that lot, you have to have the oligodendrocytes, the, the glial cells. And the glial cells actually outnumber the neurons. And whilst the synapses, photoreceptors, we think of the photoreceptor as a synapse with the outside world on the brain, um, the, the uh, synapses and um, neurons are rich in DHA. The glial cells have got much more arachidonic acid. Well, this, is, this is interesting because they're actually the cells that do the job of maintaining the brain, of wrapping the myelin around the, the, the nerves and things of that nature and maintain providing the nourishment for the neurons and synapses. So the glial cells are actually terribly important and the people seldom talk about them, but they're not as rich in DHA as the neurons and synapses and photoreceptors are. So you've got these two major components, if you like, uh, in the brain, one of which is more arachidonic acid rich and the other which is DHA rich. What about phospholipids? Yeah, well, the, the, the membranes are made of phospholipids and um, there are several different types of phospholipids, about five different types of phospholipids. Some of them are rich in uh, uh, DHA and some of them are rich in arachidonic acid. It depends on which one you look at. The inositol phospholipids are rich in arachidonic acid. The um, serine phospholipids are rich in DHA. So the, you've got a whole bunch of different phospholipids that, um, and, and different compositions which are required to maintain the um, what Meyer Bloom used to call the optimum physics of the membrane to um, uh, enable the proteins that are embedded in the membrane that do a lot of the work of the membrane, such as cell recognition, um, transport, signaling, um, uh, adhesion, and so on and so forth. Uh, so so the, the proteins are, are, of course, especially important, and they, their function is dependent on the surrounding sea of phosphoglycerides and the composition of those phosphoglycerides. And I, I got very interested in the process of methylation and B vitamins, especially B12, but also B6 and folate. Folate from foliage, but B12 is only in the animal and fish, uh, you know, marine food type origin. And homocysteine, blood levels of homocysteine, which is an exquisite uh, indicator of, of not doing methylation well, is also another predictor of uh, pregnancy outcome and birth defects. So where do these... Where, where does this fit in, the B vitamins? Yes, you've, you've got a lot of, of factors like that that are responsible essentially for um, the expression of genetic information and the manipulation of the expression of genetic information. And it, it's another whole story that... Uh, um, but the, uh, I don't particularly want to go into that. It's, um, it, it opens up a, another chapter, if you like, but essentially, gene expression is driven by the um, 
and hence the methylation of DHA is driven by uh, the composition of the cell membrane because the, 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 these um, factors, arachidonic acid and DHA, both are involved with um, signaling to the nucleus. And can we get enough of these nutrients today just from our food? If so, what should we be eating? And if not, what should we be supplementing our diet with? No, uh, I'm pretty sure that we are not, uh, as a whole uh, population, getting enough DHA. And that applies also to iodine, to um, selenium, zinc, copper and manganese. And there's been some recent studies in young children, uh, young girls, to show that um, iodine deficiency is returning to the UK, which is another signal of... Um, uh, DHA deficiency because they both they both occur in, uh, at the richest in the same marine food web. So I, I think it's very worrying that um, we're seeing this kind of evidence emerging, uh, which is just another bit of confirmation that uh, the escalation of mental ill health is is consequent on the food resource from the marine and freshwater um, sources. So, I mean, how much should we be eating? And what if you're vegetarian or vegan? Um, how do you then, can you get enough omega-3 if you just rely on flax or chia seeds? Well, yeah, if, if you're a vegetarian or a vegan, then you should, <clears throat> you should be eating um, uh, marine algae. They, they'd be a very good source of kelp and things like that. But sort of, lava bread, all these things that um, we, we've more or less forgotten how to eat. The Japanese, of course, still use a lot of seaweed, and so do many other um, cultures, uh, China as well. So, so there, there are sources that they can use which are not from the animal kingdom. But um, I wouldn't particularly advise veganism as a... Uh, or, or as a um, uh, a, a good thing for pregnancy, to be honest with you. I think if you look at the vegetarian cultures in, across the planet, um, they're the ones with the highest rates of iodine deficiency and, um, and also the highest rates of low birth weight and, and adverse outcomes of that nature. So that's that, um, another big story. I, I actually got told off uh, by the Vegan Society, very good nutritionist, for recommending uh, that the algae uh, uh, would give, you know, like lava bread, for example, uh, would give enough B12 and that B12 really is devoid in the plant kingdom and, and consequently they recommend that certainly any vegan should supplement it every day and probably pregnant women as well. I mean, you, can, you, you can take a. I like getting my messages from nature rather than expert committee. And <laughs> if, if you take a, a land-based vegetarian animal like a, um, a zebra, it has 350 grams of brain or thereabouts. In fact, probably less. Um, you take a similar-sized marine mammal like a dolphin; it's got 1.7 kilograms of brain. <laughs> you know, I mean, 
you've got to think in evolutionary terms. It's not just what's going to happen to you today or tomorrow or to your baby or something like that. You've got these things are, are um, the, 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 the um, panorama of disease processes and of um, uh, brain development and so on. Uh, it's multi-generational. It's not just something that's going to show up in the immediate uh, present. And you've got to look at these things in nature to get your messages. And there's absolutely no doubt whatsoever that the um, arrival of Homo sapiens, and it was a big brain, uh, was really a consequent on the provision of the right kind of nourishment in order for this to happen. And with a growing world population, two-thirds living in cities, polluted seas, and not enough fish, what is the future if we do nothing? What has to change well, for humanity if we're going to survive? I don't really want to go there, but I think people can really imagine the consequences of declining IQ and, and declining and increase in mental ill health. It is... Uh, the, 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 these are the things which uh, the brain is what makes us different from animals and will just descend into an animal type of um, existence which would be could bring with it a whole lot of um, behavioral disorders, violence and antisocial behavior um, that would go with it and uh, one could see the the end of humanity as being somewhat unpleasant. Now, I've seen you've been awarded the highest award in Japan, the Order of the Rising Sun. What was that for? And uh, how are the Japanese using your insights and research? Well, <laughs> in 1990, I was invited by the Japanese government, and they invited my wife as well, to do a tour of Japan um, lecturing on the significance of the marine food web to human intelligence and health. And uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. I was, I was looked after like, we were both looked after like royalty. And <clears throat> But at the end of the uh, two weeks that I, we were there, I was in a room in the Ministry of Fisheries. And the minister sat at the end of one long table and there was a whole bunch of, of, of people, professor this and doctor that, all sitting uh, on both sides of the table and I sat at the far end. And the minister asked me very simply to, to summarize what I've been telling people in Japan, which I did. And as I did, I was a bit dismayed because it looked as though he was entirely uninterested in what was going on. And at the end of the, um, of the discussion, he looked up and he said, thank you, Professor Crawford. You have explained to us why we have to agriculturalize the oceans, and this we will do. So I realized that he got the message fully. And now, um, Japan has an uh, excellent example of 
what this means. In an area in Yokohama, uh, Dr. Takahiro Tanaka created a marine agricultural um, organization where just as we have um, just as we have grass pastures for sheep and cattle, he has grass pastures in the ocean for um, what was muddy beds um, for um, uh, the mouth of an estuary for for, um, for fish. And he has extended these grass pastures, marine marine grasses, um, quite extensively um, to help with the reproduction of the fish and for also to provide food for the vegetarian fish. Then he has developed, and this took him 15 years of research to before he did anything, he has developed artificial reefs. Each of the seven species that they were targeting, seven fish species that we were targeting, um, have got artificial reefs designed specifically for their ecology and their behavioral patterns. So, for example, some fish like to hide in little holes in the rocks and things like that. So he has reefs with lots of little holes in them and so on. And um, these have been planted in deeper waters. And, and so he's, he's not just developing a, 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 a grass pastoral system for, for the fish and seafood, he's also developing the enhancement of the basic marine productivity that starts with surfaces. You have to have a surface for stuff to grow on. And you can see this with any old wrecks that fall down to the bottom of the ocean, that they soon get colonized by all the, the beginnings of the marine food web. That's where it all starts. And what has happened, of course, is that in the, since they have started this, they have tripled the productivity in terms of fish uh, uh, compared to what was happening before. And it, whilst they, they have increased productivity, um, fish catch in surrounding areas has been diminishing. So I, uh, of course, he's not just stopped at um, the seven target species of fish. He's also um, got oysters and mussel beds and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so you could imagine that, 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 that we would really have a new industrial revolution by developing our coastline in this kind of way, as mar developing marine agriculture. Let's face it, Foresight Report 2011 said that we had reached the limit of land available for arable agriculture. Yet, since, and, and, and in 2000, the global fish catch reached a limit. And since then, we've added 2 billion to the population, and there's another billion on the way. The only way we're going to be able to feed these people is if we start developing what the minister said, agriculturalize the oceans. It's the only solution. 71% of the planet is covered in water. And we've got to start with cleaning up the estuaries, the rivers, lakes, start cleaning up the coastlines 
And this was the message, interestingly enough, of the Declaration of Manila in 2012. And we've got to start doing this as a matter of urgency. And the beauty about it is that we not only provide food for the expanding population, we also solve the problem of mental ill health, which we have to solve. It's a more, a more serious threat to the sustainability of humanity than global warming. But it will also solve global warming because you can grow, you can't grow any more rainforests, but you can grow them in the sea with kelp forests. And kelp forests do exactly the same as the uh, forests in the Amazon. They fix CO2. They address ocean acidification. They address climate pollution by CO2. And they provide food. They provide fertilizers for land-based agriculture. And so it's a win-win situation all the way along. And it's not just kelp that fixes CO2. The whole system that Tanaka has developed in Japan is based on actually starting the marine food web with the photosynthetic stuff. And that photosynthetic stuff, which is the food for the fish and seafood, that photosynthetic stuff is fixing, taking CO2 out of the atmosphere and giving us a, a, a choice for the future. It's the only way that we're going to be able to feed future populations. And it's the only way we're going to save mental health of the children to be born. Michael, you've taken us from the very origin of the nervous system and brain to the evolution of Homo sapiens, uh, to the kind of rise and fall of our brain size and mental health. And you've also, most importantly, given a vision uh, for a future uh, which can restore us to uh, our true um, and rightful state as Homo sapiens, happy and healthy. Now, I understand that you have recently finished a book, which hopefully will be out soon. What can you tell us about that so we can access your amazing, <laughs> your amazing yeah. uh, world of information? Yeah, well, um, David Marsh and I, a friend of mine, um, published a book uh, back in the uh, beginning of the 90s. 1990s, um, the driving force. And that really basically was about the role of nutrition and evolution. It was also about Darwin and his um, uh, concept that in every uh, edition of his wonderful book, he explains that there are two forces in evolution. There's natural selection and conditions of existence. And of the two, he says, the conditions of existence is the most powerful. Now that um, was his um, occupation really after he had finished all these books. He was interested in what was it in the environment that influenced the ways the genome behaved. 
and he talked about things like pangenes, but he couldn't find anything, and um, that was it. But we now know that this is epigenetics, that the influence of the environment is actually changing the way the genes behave. And we can see this quite clearly. Um, in 1900, 1900, 1900 the, 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 the um, cardiovascular disease, death from heart disease, was relatively rare. By the 1960s, it was number one killer. Now we're seeing <coughs> obesity, diabetes type two, mental ill health. The changing panorama of health is not due to changing genome. <coughs> It's due to the epigenetic factors that are working here. And uh, unfortunately, Darwin's view on the environment was uh, um, destroyed by a fellow called August Weissman, who <clears throat> performed an experiment, which is effectively an experiment in mutilation. He cut the tails off rodents, and when the rodents persisted in growing new tails, he um, declared triumphantly that the Dar Darwin's conditions of existence had nothing to do with evolution. And of course, mutilation's got nothing to do with conditions of existence. Unfortunately, it, this dumping of Darwin's conditions of existence um, <clears throat> was uh, if, fell on receptive minds because everybody thought that they were the leaders of the world, so to speak. And um, from that day on, we had what might be referred to as the gene-centered view of biology, and the environment took a back seat. Now we're seeing today just how much the environment is actually threatening our own existence. And uh, so we thought it would be right to restore Darwin's original view that the conditions of existence was the most powerful force in evolution. So that was the book, and we talked about the brain, of course, and how important it was to get the nutrition of the brain right. So this new book is, is really an update of that whole story, and uh, effectively about what we've just been talking about. And what's it called, and when might we be able to buy one? <laughs> what's that? Uh, what's the title? And do, do you know when it's out? Yeah, the title of the book is The Brain Under Siege. And it really is putting the case that unless we do something pretty quickly, we're going to lose humanity. Well, Michael, thank you immensely for really a lifetime of brilliant uh, research and thinking um, clearly through what is in a way so obvious but so massively ignored. I was really uh, moved and educated by your work back in the 80s when I founded the Institute for Optimum Nutrition. We now have thousands of nutritional therapists who are carrying out uh, you know, your kind of message. So I just want you to know that there's a whole generation of, of smart people who are doing their best no. to bring this into our cultures. So I want to thank you immensely for giving your time to share your wisdom on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.